This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, author of The Fact of the Body, A Murder and a Memoir. The book is a genre-mixing tale of the author's real-life experience as the victim of sexual abuse alongside the retelling of a death row case in Louisiana involving the molestation and murder of a child by a 26-year-old convicted pedophile. The fact of the body is as much about how we tell our stories and where to begin them as it is about the facts that make up a case in the eyes of the law. Marzano Lesnevich attended law school at Harvard, and we began our discussion talking about her interest in the law. I am the daughter of two lawyers. I grew up discussing the Constitution over the dinner table. I really idolized the law as almost this, this record of our philosophical commitments as a society. And I still think that that's what it's supposed to be. That's what it wants to be. We know more now. I think we talk more openly about the problems in that. But I think there's still this beautiful, striving idea of what the law could be. And so I fell in love with that as a kid. My mother started law school uh, when I was an older child, and she would bring us with her on a couple of occasions. And I remember the thrill of watching the professors. I vividly remember the first female professor I saw, who was also the first woman I'd ever seen wear a suit, um, standing in front of the classroom and kind of commanding the classroom and telling a legal hypothetical, which at the time struck me for what it really is. It was a story. And so when I was a little bit older, when I was um, seventh or eighth grade, um, I was homesick from school. And I found a copy of 1L, Scott Turow's account of his first year at Harvard Law School, on my father's shelf. And I read that book you know, on my parents' couch with a big mug of tea next to me. And his description of Tort's class just struck me as amazing. People were going to talk about cause and they were going to talk about causality and they were going to talk about really a story it sounded like and I just loved both what I the the scraps of the law that I got from my parents conversations but then also what I discovered in those pages Um, and from that point on I really wanted to go to law school and coupled with that was this moment that I remembered from childhood in which I realized that the death penalty existed and was just incredibly horrified by it Um, we were standing on this airport tarmac after a family vacation, and just kind of killing time waiting for the plane. And my brother told a joke. My brother is hilarious and a jokester, and he's always telling jokes. And he told this joke, and the punchline involved the electric chair. And I had never heard of the electric chair, so I asked what that was. And I remember the absolute shock of realizing that the law that I loved could put someone to death. And so all kind of all of those things together, to try to understand that, to try to fight that, to try to understand the society that I lived in, all of those things sent me to law school. Can you explain a little bit about each story? So basically, there is the story of Ricky Langley and then the story of your personal life in your home. Can you just give uh, an overview? In my own story, I grew up, as I said, the daughter of two lawyers. And we grew up in this town called Tennessee, in New Jersey. And it was... I think sort of an idyllic suburban existence on the outside. And on the inside, as in many families, I think, behind closed doors, there was more going on. So my parents had uh, lost a child when myself and my twin brother were five months old. We had actually been triplets. 
although we didn't know that when we were very young. And they had lost a daughter. And in retrospect, I think they were suffering from a lot of grief without her experiencing a lot of grief. And so at home, it was kind of chaotic. My father was very depressed and uh, had a lot of anger. And through this time, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was actually also sexually abusing myself and my two young sisters. And so that planted the seeds for the family narrative that's in the book. That's juxtaposed with Ricky Langley, who was a twice convicted pedophile uh, when at the age of 26, he murdered a little boy named Jeremy Guillory. And it follows Jeremy Guillory's mother, Lorelai, first as she searches for her son, and then ultimately after Ricky Langley leads the police to find Jeremy's body. After that, I realized that I actually needed to go back in time and retell the story of this murder another way. And I went back to before Ricky Langley was conceived and tried to tell the story of his family as it exists in the records. His parents, Bessie and Elsie Langley, by the time they were 23 and 24, they had five small children. This was before Ricky Langley was even conceived. And they had left Louisiana and gone to California to kind of try to build a new life. But Alcide had lost his job in, Louisiana, in California. And then when they were coming back from California to Louisiana, they were in this horrific car crash that killed two of the children and placed Bessie in a body cast, the body cast in which Ricky Langley was eventually conceived. And that crash, I really think, haunted their family for many years. And certainly we know that it haunted Ricky Langley. He told the story over and over again. And it was always shape-shifting, always changing. And when I first saw that crash and that haunting in the records, it brought to mind very strongly the silence we had in my own family about the sister who had died when my brother and I were five months old. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alexandria Marzano-Lesnevich, author of The Fact of the Body, A Murder and a Memoir. You're telling all these facts, but it's such an exploration of your own feelings. On page 237, you even were talking about what is the origin of my life? Where does it begin? Where does it start? Does it start with my parents meeting? Does it start with my sister dying? And you ask these questions about both cases. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that bigger question that you raise in the book about stories and the beginnings of things and how that intersects with the law. The way we tell a story has consequences for the way we understand cause in that story. Where you start implies that this is where it began, right? This is this is the cause, this is the unfolding. Uh, in a fiction narrative, we might call that the inciting incident at the start, and it's the thing that kicks off the trouble, right? And it speaks later on to a crisis and a climax. And it implies, oh yes, this is, this is what we were building to. This crisis or climax is kind of the apex of the conflict that was kicked off by the thing in the start. And I suppose it was my training as a writer that made me start thinking about how this relates to the way we tell stories in the law. In the first part, I tell the story of the murder that Ricky Langley committed, starting with the murder and going over the next three days until Ricky Langley leads the police to Jeremy Guillory's body. Okay, that's one way to tell the story. And it places a strong causal emphasis on Ricky's actions in that moment, on Ricky Langley's actions in that moment. But then there's another way that you could tell the story, 
And that way it would, would, be, would begin, or it might begin, one of the places it could begin, would be before Ricky Langley was born. And then you could tell the story again, and all of a sudden, the same murder starts to acquire almost a different meaning, or at least a different way in which we understand people's actions. And I was, I've always been really struck by the idea that in Torah law, there's an awareness that how you tell the story really matters. And that's the idea of proximate cause. The idea that you could tell the story with many different causes, causes in fact, things that in fact led to the incident, but that there's one, the proximate cause that the law says really matters, is really the cause. And I think that's very close to how we tell stories in life. We're constantly doing that. We're constantly retelling ourselves stories of cause. And the criminal law doesn't really have an awareness of that. It's sort of implicitly built into the trial. First, the prosecution will tell the story and they'll focus on the crime. Then the defense will tell the story and they'll focus on a larger context. And then, okay, it'll be tossed to the jury and the jury will sort it out. But we don't have an explicit awareness of cause. We don't have an explicit name for it in criminal law. Yeah, it's interesting because basically what you're also getting at is you could look at Ricky as someone who basically killed this young boy. Maybe it wasn't premeditated, but he had some issues with with being a pedophile. But you could also look at the origins of his life and say, well, his mom drank and did a lot of had a lot of medications when she was pregnant and it wasn't his fault. And same with your own life is that, you know, your grandfather was also molested as a child. And so it seems that one of the things that your book is pointing to without ever saying that is generational trauma and where our stories begin. One of the things that really struck me when I was reading the records is the way that in Ricky Langley's family, this little boy, Oscar, who was killed in the crash uh, before Ricky was even conceived, he almost, in the telling and the retelling of the stories of the past, he almost acquired this almost supernatural power where the idea of him became much bigger than the actual little boy whose life was lost and who kind of got overshadowed by the story. Um, So much so that Ricky Langley would eventually tell renditions of the murder. And one of the things that highlighted storytelling for me in this, in this book was that Ricky Langley himself keeps retelling the story of the murder over and over again, almost as though he's trying to understand the past, almost as though he's trying to understand cause. And one of the ways he tells the story of the murder is that he strangled Jeremy Guillory, trying to kill Oscar Lee Langley, trying to finally rid his family of the ghost of the past. And since I'm from a family in which I would say we were haunted, but we never ever spoke about that haunting. And because of that, I think that past haunting, that trauma, my, my sister acquired this terrible hold over all of us. Even now to say her name is to break a strong taboo, is to kind of dredge up a ton of pain in the past that was kind of never looked at, never resolved. And I wanted to tell a story about those hauntings because in some ways this is a book about the power the past has in our lives and kind of the unexpected ways in which the past turns out to have power in our lives. There was a sense throughout the book in some of the, the questions that you posed as literal questions as well as maybe the more thematic questions. Is closure possible? That's a great question. What does closure mean? I think that's, that's actually what that question sort of indicates. For me, I kept trying to solve the question of how to think of Ricky Langley and how to think of my grandfather. What my body remembers is my grandfather as a child molester. He remembers it so vividly. What my family insists on is my grandfather as a loving grandfather. 
and this childhood as this you know picture perfect suburban thing and I could tell the story one way focusing on what happened to me with my grandfather and my childhood would have one meaning or I could tell the story another way and focus on the summer evenings on on the lawn in the back of our house with the music playing and and dinner laid out on the picnic table and this this beautiful summer night or my grandfather teaching me to draw and showing me to play checkers. And neither one of those two retellings would be complete. They would be a story. I kept trying to solve this question of how to think of him because I needed an answer. And with Ricky Langley, do you tell the story as, well, Ricky Langley is an evil pedophile murderer? Or do you tell the story as Ricky Langley has been haunted since you know his life has been cast since before he was born in this way that relates to the harms of the past? And who knows what damage he suffered from drugs and from x-rays when he was in utero and Bessie Langley was in that cast for all those long months. You know, how do you understand the childhood he had? How do you understand somebody who says he was molesting children from the time he was nine or 10 years old? And then as a teenager, keeps trying to get help, keeps trying to get help. How do you understand that person when he then murders Jeremy Guillory? I don't ever want to lose track of what the people in the story did but I also don't want to lose track of who they are as people. I kept trying to solve that duality at first, and that was what I thought closure was. And then I realized that the duality was the closure, that the only thing to do was to acknowledge that both people were both, and that every person in this story is a person and has their own reason for doing what they did. And that doesn't mean that we should erase the harm, but then also paying attention to the harm doesn't mean that we should erase the humanity. It has to be both. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alexandria Marzano-Lesnevich, author of The Fact of the Body, A Murder and a Memoir. Because you are asking some really big questions about memory and story and identity, I'm just wondering if writing this changed you and if so, how? Oh, it changed me immensely. <laughs> I mean, almost anything that you lived with for so long would change you deeply. But it's made me so much more aware of the stories we tell in our lives and so much more aware that behind every simple narrative is actually this long construction that went into creating it that the narrative usually papers over. I don't look at legal cases the same way anymore. I don't look at the criminal justice system the same way anymore. I don't look at the way that people tell stories about what happened in their family the same way anymore. Every story is complicated. No one story is complete. And yet, I always want to be careful in highlighting that, just say that there are still facts. And so this question of how do you understand interpretation and storytelling and facts and the way that people can look at the same set of facts, and yes, sometimes there are disputes over those facts, but also people can look at the same set of facts and be telling themselves a completely different story about the world, that's actually become very related to the teaching idea. So I teach at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard now, and in the fall, I'll start teaching at the School of Public Health at Harvard, um, in both cases, looking at the way that narrative underlies policy. And I'll say that was sort of an obscure topic roundabout until November, <laughs> when we had a sort of national contest over different kinds of stories that you could tell about the nation, that you could tell about our past. Um, and now it no longer seems as obscure. But so I would say that the process of writing this book made me far more aware of just how much every story we tell is a construction. Well, can you read a passage from a book that influenced you as a writer? So this is from Michael Gilmore's book, Shot in the Heart. He was the brother of Gary Gilmore, the first person executed when the U.S. reinstated the death penalty. 
and Gary Gilmore asked to be executed by being shot in the heart. And this book is Michael Gilmore's pretty extraordinary grappling with that choice and with the violence his brother did. I have a story to tell. It is a story of murders, murders of the flesh and of the spirit, murders born of heartbreak, of hatred, of retribution. It is the story of where those murders began, of how they take form and enter our actions, how they transform our lives, how their legacies spill into the world and the history around us. And it is a story of how the claims of violence and murder end, if indeed they ever end. I know this story well because I have been stuck inside it. I have lived with its causes and effects, its details and indelible lessons my entire life. I know the dead in this story. I know why they made death for others and why they sought it for themselves. And if I ever hope to leave this place, I must tell what I know. So let me begin. And tell me why you chose this. You know, I first read that passage in 2006 or so. And it wasn't until I was looking at it more recently that I noticed that repetition of the word story and maybe began to understand just how deeply that had influenced me. Um, this book changed my worlds when I read it because, yes, Michael Gilmore is trying to explain this thing in his family, sort of who his brother is and what his brother did and this choice his brother made. But to do that, he goes back into the history of Utah and he starts talking about ghosts and he talks about mythology and he talks about all these complicated ways in which people understood their own lives. And that was the first moment in which I really saw someone say, okay, I'm going to tell you the story of this event, but to do it, I actually have to tell you about all these other things. Because at that moment, I hadn't really made peace with the way that I was viewing the murder of Jeremy Guillory, um, with the way that my subconscious was seeing all these other things as connected to it. Reading this had kind of the shock of recognition. The other way in which I think it influenced me profoundly was that Gilmore has this strong cadence and this voice that gestures toward the epic. And it kind of says, okay, I see the epic in this story. You know, I have a story to tell. It's a story of murders. And that struck me as a voice that, you know, is not the one he uses in daily life. I mean, I don't know him, but I'm going to guess that he doesn't walk around going, I need a cup of coffee. It's a story to tell, you know. But rather was a voice that was constructed to express there's something about this story, something about the way that he saw the epic in his family. And in my own case, it wasn't so much that I needed a voice that, you know, insisted on the epic. Certainly, there was very early on a bit of writing about this book that, that, that sounded like that when I was still trying to find my voice. But rather that I needed a voice that was tied to almost the central argument of the book or the angle of vision that the narrator had or the perspective that she had on the events in it. And that that voice had to be kind of chosen and constructed to suit the material. And I think when I finally did find the voice that this book is told in, it kind of snapped everything in place for me, because there were definitely points in the drafting where the jury selection moments, for example, were written in a much drier voice than the sort of super lyric um, passages of my childhood. And these voices kind of didn't match. They weren't from the same narrator. And I had to find a narrator. I had to modulate the telling of each of those sections which, and find a narratorial voice that could deliver everything and explain why it was all connected. And in my case, that turned out to be a voice that would actually highlight the construction and, and highlight the ellipses and, and be very open about this imagining and this wondering and not insist that I know the story. But the idea that Gilmore had had to invent a voice that could say, I know the story because it was tied to the aims of the book 
let me think about who my storyteller was. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Alexandria Marzano Lesnevich, author of The Fact of the Body, A Murder and a Memoir. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft? I actually want to read a passage that didn't change at all from the first draft because it was tricky. Um, The context of the passage is that it's 2015. Um, I'm obviously an adult and I'm in bed with my girlfriend and we're in the third part of the book. And I am having actually a a flashback, a, a bit of a panic attack. Hold me, I gasped. And I felt her arms go taut around me. I gripped her arms. I clung. Where does the mind go in these moments while the body trembles? For me, it is a white-hot slipstream blank out, the nothingness of no time and nowhere and no one. It used to be a feeling, a single, concentrated, excruciating feeling, the smooth, hot texture of my grandfather's penis against my hand, for example, or the specific purple-pink color his penis had, a color that still makes me uncomfortable no matter where I see it, though the discomfort is vague now, the signal no longer traced back to its origin, with only the effect felt. But as the years have blotted the origin out, I am grateful. They have blotted the sensations too, as though the film reel of the memory has been played so many times it has gone torn and blotched. Now I have only to ride the panicked blankness. Oh, f- I say, when the wave of sensation starts to break over me, inside me, and then I breathe to keep up with the panicked race swell of my body, the heartbeat and the breath. The wave builds and builds, it crests and breaks. It sounds as though I am describing something else, doesn't it? But this isn't an orgasm. It is terror. When it breaks, I cry. The wave flows out of me. My breath slows and I can feel the tears on my cheeks hot, though I am not aware of them leaving me or even of any feeling of sadness. I am a sack into which the wave has broken and now it must come leaking out of me. I have been a vessel. I am now only a throughway. Who I am outside this feeling becomes as irrelevant as time. And tell me about that. You know, I resisted for so long in this book describing what a flashback felt like. I resisted delving into the impact of what had happened to me on my own body. And that's actually the only moment in the text in which I do delve into it quite so specifically. There's one other moment that gets close, but that's the only moment in which I actually have a flashback. And I think I resisted it because it's something that I have trouble putting language to. It is an experience without language. And it's also something that just felt so incredibly intimate and hard to bring to the page. Um, And what made me finally do it was that I realized that here I was trying to empathize with Ricky Langley while on the page in the records, I can see the sort of the vestigial traces of references to the children he molested, but I have no access to their experience. I don't have access to the harm he caused them. And I didn't want that lack of access to sort of allied to harm. And so I realized I had to talk about what my body holds. I had to talk about the effect of the past on my body. But once I decided I had to do that, oh God, the trouble was putting it into language. And then something happened one day and I wrote that and the longer section that's around it in kind of a fever dream. And it has changed so little, really just the scrap of an edge of a word. Um, But it's almost, it came onto the page solid from a place that is in my subconscious at a level that I can't consciously access. It just stayed that way. And I think in this book, there's so many passages in which I've had to really struggle to calibrate the tone quite right, to try to get at this 
this balance between everything I'm trying to evoke and yet still have this propulsion forward. Um, and I thought a lot about suspense in this book. You know, it's a book in which difficult things happen, in which I ask the reader to think about difficult things, ultimately, in which I ask myself to think about difficult things. And so it was important to me that the pages turn, uh, because I knew I was going to end up going to a hard place, but I wanted the reader to kind of be told a damn good story about telling stories as we got there. But then this moment didn't take the calibration. The calibration happened on a level I don't have access to. It happened inside me in all those times when I tried to put this into words and couldn't, and then it just came out. So it was part of trusting my body, I think, trusting my subconscious. Where do you write? That answer is different uh, depending on what I'm working on. So in my normal life, sometimes I write at my kitchen table. Um, I don't write in coffee shops. I need silence. Uh, And most of my writing I do at the writer's room of Boston, uh, which is this wonderful workspace in the financial district um, that we have a key to, you know, each of us who belongs to the room has a key to, and we have access 24-7, and it's just a, a quiet floor with lots of cubicles on it. The most artistically evocative cubicles uh, they could be with plants and nice lamps and big windows out into the financial district, yes, but also cubicles. Um, and it's a silent floor, but you can sort of talk to people in the kitchen, and it's a, it's a community, but it's a place where I can work and yet feel in solitude at the same time. I also write a lot at artist colonies. Artist colonies were crucial to me with this book because even though now I do a lot of writing at kind of my kitchen table, sometimes at my desk, but in a weird way, my desk in my office feels almost too much pressure. I have to kind of, I prefer to be in other places in my apartment. But this book, I couldn't write at home. I couldn't go as deeply into the material if I was at home because what drew me to this book was was how upsetting I found kind of the material for it, was how upsetting I found the source material. And yes, ultimately, I sort of thought about how to tell a book, how to, how to tell a story that would grip the reader. Um, but at the heart of it is something that I'm trying to figure out and that haunts me. And inviting it into my home caused almost muteness. I, I couldn't write. Um, I think because my subconscious knew if I went deep into the places I needed to go, if I was already at home, there would be no rescue. There would be no way to get away from it. So it was transformative in my writing when I sort of moved the records down to the writer's room um, and started writing there instead and, uh, and going away to many different artist colonies that I feel very fortunate were very supportive of this book. Um, and so that's how I did this book, but I'm starting to have more flexibility in where I write now that I'm working on other things. So uh, now I'm starting to write a lot more at home. Now that, my, now that I'm working on material that my subconscious doesn't need the, the physical distance from. It was almost like because I was still ha- so haunted by this material, I had almost this sort of totemic relationship to the actual files, and they had to be far away from where I went to sleep at night. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, um, so for a long time, I, I, I went home because the writing was a thing, as I just said, that was happening outside of my home. And so home would be the place that I could come and and seek refuge from it. Specifically, the, the bathtub was a place that I could come and seek refuge from it. But I would say I, I also just get out into the world. I'm a big fan of long walks. Um, I'm a big fan of going on hikes. I'm a big fan of going swimming. Um, and I love to travel. I love to go to cities that I don't know and um, experience worlds that aren't my own. Um, but I'll say, you know, writing is something you bring with you. So even when I'm doing that, my subconscious is kind of always percolating away with ideas and 
And ideas often come when I'm, when I'm not chasing them. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a fantastic writing group um, called the Chunky Monkeys. Why it is called the Chunky Monkeys has been lost to time. How have you dealt with rejection? I think it's just something you have to deal with as a writer. You know, one thing about social media is that it makes us all very aware of each other's successes, but nobody posts as much about rejection. <laughs> and I sort of wish we did, you know, and it, it's so incredibly common and something you have to just make friends with. Um, that was really hard for me at first when I was first, first, first starting out as a writer. Um, the first essay I finished, I actually held on to for three years. I was so afraid that when I finally showed it to someone, they would reject it. And instead, something else happened, which is that the first place that I sent it to took it. And I had this whole other different kind of emotional reaction where I wasn't sure, oh, God, did I send it to the right place? Like, did I take as big a chance on it as I should have? Um, And it sort of taught me how complex one's emotional relationship would be to publication anyway. So rejection was just kind of another part of it. And very early on, I was at this wonderful writing residency at the Ragdale Foundation, and it was my first ever residency, and someone else there was telling a story about a friend of hers who had won all these amazing things for her writing in one year. And she asked her friend, how did you do that? You know, how did all that happen in one year? And her friend, supposedly said, um, rule of 100, which was that what her friend did was pursue up to 100 rejections per year and count those and track those and reward herself for those and celebrate those. Um, and along the way, something good was kind of bound to happen. Uh, I've never hit 100 because I've never had enough material to send out in one year to hit 100. That is a lot. I'm not sure anyone's ever hit 100. Um, but it is something about realizing that I could flip the script and I could celebrate and be proud of the chances I was taking and not be so struck by rejection, but just understand it as a chance I was taking. Um, and the other thing I would say is just, you know, there are times when rejection has taught me a lot about what is and isn't working in a piece. Um, and there have been other times when I received a rejection on something that I, in retrospect, realized was too safe and that my own fear was misplaced, that my fear of rejection was kind of keeping me from taking as many risks on the page as I needed to. Um, and so in those moments, sometimes rejection has been deeply liberating because it's been like, all right, well, my safe rendition isn't going to get published, so I guess I better just write it the way I really mean it. And that was something that helped me a lot with this book, that in the end, I kind of needed to take all the chances I could because if a safer rendition got rejected, I, I would never know whether my true vision would have actually found a home, would have actually found readers. And um, along the way, as I learned to handle rejection, this book became more itself. It, it became more of this collision between these two different styles and it, and it took more formal risks. What is your favorite word? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a terrible word, but the favorite word is precisely. And I say it's a terrible word because it's almost never needed, right? You can almost always strike it. <clears throat> and yet what I love about it is the sound, that precise, precisely, um, and that gentle curve at the end. Um, and I remember actually being in elementary school, standing in the, my elementary school library, and someone asking me my favorite word and me saying precisely. And uh, that person being horrified in the way of elementary school kids, right? It was such a dorky word. But um, as an adult, I'll say, hey, I embrace my dorky writer self and my favorite word is precisely. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Alexandria Marzano Lesnevich, author of The Fact of the Body, A Murder and a Memoir. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.